Forget frequently asked questions, common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond and become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in fields such as sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Get ready. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have David Greening. He's the head of molecular proteomics at the Baker Institute. Uh, he's also a senior research fellow at La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science. And um, he runs an innovative research program looking to identify mechanisms of uh, cell communication by their excretion of uh, extracellular vesicles. So, David, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Yeah, well, good, thank you. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, can you uh, t- tell me about your, your research in your own words? Yeah, no worries at all. Look, uh, I guess we run a um, what we call a molecular proteomics group. And that encompasses, um, I guess, two areas uh, of speciality. One is exosomes and extracellular vesicles. So these are small nanocarriers or nanoparticles that are released from cells that contain really specific cargo and contents and can transfer that cargo um, to other cells and other organs at different sites or in the body and can change those sites for good and not so good purposes. And so that's one area of our research. The other area is, is proteomics. And proteomics is, think about it, the global, um, call it dynamic study of all proteins at that one point in time. So like genomics has contributed as many genes as we know about, whether it's human or life, um, proteomics allows us to gain a snapshot of the proteins. So where they're found, um, their, their expression and how they differ with either normal physiology or disease. So what, when you look at the proteomics of a, you know, a cell population, what, is it, uh, what are some things that could tell you over and above okay. the, uh, gene expression? Yeah, sure, sure. So I guess a simple proteomics experiment would allow you to uh, find out not only the abundant or not so abundant proteins that are expressed, where they're found in a cell, i.e. their certain localization targets and things like that. But really importantly is how does that differ with either disease or age or any sort of phenomenon that you actually want to look at. So I guess a good example here, you know, is cancer and uh, proteomics in the, in the space of cancer can tell you what are the key markers that either are turned on or off or activated, such as signaling components, and then what are some of the targets that then can be designed to interfere with those sort of protein targets or signaling components? Because I guess the, the power of proteomics is it allows you to identify what we call the key regulators of biology, okay? And that is the protein itself. So things like enzymes um, are really proteins. And so proteomics allows you to identify thousands upon thousands of proteins at one point in time, which some have a direct functional role and others may be what we call a passenger role. Okay, so when you've identified this population of, you know, proteins, what are 
example, what are some of the roles that the, the proteins would take up? Yeah, sure. Look, um, some could be, you know, specifically to the nucleus or some could be for the cell membrane. So this could be quite important if you wanted to um, interfere with something on a membrane. Um, so membrane proteins are, constitute around about 70 to 80% of the drug targets currently available. Um, a lot of the work that we want to look at is the secreted component. So these are like growth factors, chemokines, which also offer a, a very abundant source of drug targets. Um, so proteomics allows you to, I guess, identify what are the components being secreted or membrane or nuclear all at once. Uh, and that's, I guess, the power of that sort of technology. A proteomics, or, or sorry, are proteins uh, packaged into extracellular vesicles or how are they expressed through the cell membrane? Yeah, they are. Yeah, exactly. So um, in terms of secreted factors, you can have this as either soluble factors, so as I said, like growth factors, chemokines, they can be released from cells. And we've known about that sort of signaling um, for more than 40 years. Uh, these are, you know, a lot of the, the known signaling components um, that can travel through blood and, and uh, the other sort of media um, are secreted factors. But the other part, it can actually be membrane vesicles. And this is quite a newly emerging or emerged field. Um, now, these, I guess, the components that can be packaged within vesicles are also very, very select. So they do include proteins. And that's really where our interface comes with the technology of proteomics with the biology of vesicles. Um, and obviously, the, the, com the components of vesicles do differ between um, whether it's disease or physiology. So it allows us to get an insight about what are the components packaged within. Okay. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't seem like a lot of uh, labs or people are looking necessarily at the proteomics. I mean, they're, they seem to be more gene-focused. Exactly. So I think from a, from a diet, it depends what application um, you, know, you, you want to go through here. But um, diagnostics, RNA um, analyses, which would, if you're trying to pursue a diagnostic path, um, the content within vesicles from a diagnostic angle is, offers advantages. Um, and also from a protein point of view, which is the, call it the functional um, uh, entity that, you know, if the vesicle is transferring some component, um, then um, it could be the protein itself is, is contributing to that. Um, I think where the field is actually going is more to look at a systems approach. And this is really encompasses not only protein and RNA and um, sort of DNA and lipid, but um, collectively. Um, so what is, how is the RNA affecting protein and vice versa? Okay. So um, when you look at the protein expression of a particular cell, you know, in its, in its EV population, I mean, what, again, what has this told you? What, uh, what does it tell you about the condition of the cell, depending on what's expressed in the proteins? Is there a dramatic sure. difference, for instance, when you look at, you know, cancer cells or like what, uh, what really jumps out at you when you do these analyses? Yeah, sure. Look, I guess the, the biggest advantage um, before we start to look at disease and, and physiology is what is it in a vesicle that is distinct from the cell? And we know that the vesicle components or proteins and things like that um, allowed us really to start defining vesicles. And I think from the, the work in the past probably five to eight years has really been focused around um, what components are packaged from a cell into a vesicle really specifically. And we know that biology doesn't do this um, as a, 
as a non-specific means, there's a really there's a reason why that happens, and there's a lot of controls within the cell that we now know selectively package cargo into vesicles within the cell, and these are then released as exosomes. So I guess the first part has really been that it's allowed us to start looking at subtypes of vesicles. So these are it's sort of where the immune field um, was about 20, 25 years ago, is that there was an idea that um, there was these entities, these cells that could elicit function, but there was no idea about what was the markers on those cells. And therefore, before strides could be taken to start defining what those cells actually are, um, you had to define what the markers on those cells actually were. And that's really where the vesicle field is now, is that um, we now know that there's a variety of subtypes of vesicles, exosomes being one, shed microbiote vesicles are another, apoptotic bodies, but there's also subtypes within those vesicles now. So it's becoming quite a complex, um, we've sort of turned it vesicolome, which is there's all these different types of extracellular vesicles um, with distinct markers. And we now know that the cell type itself is very, very important to dictate what is the components within those vesicles. So that's the first part, which is the, call it the heterogeneity of, of extracellular vesicles. Second part is, yes, you're right, that as you start to move through a, call it a, whatever a normal cell is, a heart cell, cardiac cell, an endothelial cell, an endometrial cell versus a cancer cell, the, com the composition of the cell is very, very distinct. And as such, the composition of the extracellular vesicles is very distinct. Um, so that's really where the power of proteomics and other sort of omics technologies allows us to gain a really dynamic snapshot of the composition of the vesicle, not only compared to the cell, but clearly compared to other vesicles from other cells. But again, you can't study every cell type. So which cell types are you focusing in on? Uh, oh, exactly. What kind of think, heterogeneity are you, are you seeing in the vesicles? And what does that tell you? Yeah, look, um, look my background is a, is a cancer biologist. So I've come through looking at the role of these vesicles in shaping a cancer environment. Okay, And this is really where we know that cancer cells don't exist in isolation, as well as every other cell doesn't exist in isolation. It's really a, a multitude of a variety of cancer-inducing, cancer-passenger, um, stromal sort of cells that actively contribute to this environment. And we know that extracellular vesicles are a really important player in that space. Um, we know that they can signal not only locally to other cells, so cancer cell to stromal cell, but we also know that stromal cells, so-called normal cells around a cancer, can signal back and control the cancer. And we think that that's really where this so-called that, you know, cancers effectively can lie in dormancy. They almost are self-controlled to not be cancer cells. Um, what the trigger then is for it to advance and metastasize is, is still an ongoing work, but we think vesicles do play a very active role in that. Um, so that's one sort of area, like cancer biology. I think some of the other areas that we have got into recently would be more around the uterine microenvironment. So this is the interaction between an embryo and the mother. So the embryo-endometrial interaction, which is actually incredibly dynamic um, and controls how and when um, an embryo we think actually implants in the mother. And we think this is quite broad species. So that's, I guess, the second example. And the third is we've started to get into the space of what are the role of vesicles in, in cardiac uh, disease? So how does the heart environment, so we know the heart is made up of predominantly of, uh, of in the endometrial cells, um, sorry, endothelial cells, but um, uh, and a variety of other cardiac cells, but how that actually environment is shaped 
and the signaling between those cells is actually quite important. Um, so I think quite a few labs around the world are now piggybacking on to, to sort of this, this idea that you can actually then deliver components to control that signal, the so-called regenerative or cell-free regeneration. So what, what does uh, the proteomics tell you about the biogenesis of vesicles or when they're taken into a cell, where they end up going? Yeah, sure. Look, so proteomics, you can, you can I guess, um, state proteomics as either being a very broad global sort of technique, um, which could be what are the components in a cell? How does that cell differ with time, age, a drug treatment or something? Um, the second part could be a targeted sort of question, which is what you've just raised then, which is how does a signaling pathway be turned on? Or what are the key components in that cell that are altered as a result of exosome treatment or something like that? So proteomics allows us to gain an insight into what are the components in a vesicle, i.e. the key factors that are shared between other types of vesicles from other cell types. And all of a sudden you can start to build up a almost a, a catalogue or an atlas about what are the key components, the common components present in all types of vesicles or all types of cell-derived vesicles. And this is really where um, I think the field about probably five or six years ago came to the idea that actually proteomics is very powerful to tell you how vesicles are formed because there's clues within the vesicle that there's cargo and shuttling components that for whatever reason is actually left within or on the vesicle itself. So things like escort components, which are endosomal sorting components, and other sort of passenger and sorting components um, responsible for trafficking the vesicle through the cell and out of the cell are actually found in and on the vesicle itself. So from that, you can start to gain clues about how these vesicles are made, what regulates the components regulating their, their sorting and trafficking, and then potentially um, how does that differ between other types of vesicles. Are EVs, um, are they passive or do they have an energy source that they consume as they move and... Are they just relying on cells to, uh, you know, have the right ligand that they attach to, or do they, do they seem to have some active component where they, you know, they're not only targeted, but they're somehow able to deliberately seek out their targets? Good question. I think uh, um, the field is still uh, coming to terms with that. We, we think it is an um, active process. The, the actual generation of these vesicles is constant. It's not like the synaptic um, sort of cleft area, synaptic um, junction, where vesicles are stored and then released upon um, sort of a stimulus. But these vesicles are constant, meaning that the cell is really constantly communicating with its either local or, or, or distant environment. Um, how vesicles then traffic specifically and what makes those vesicles then traffic specifically to those sites um, is still actually being determined. We know that there's a variety of targeting components on the vesicle. Integrins being one, there's a few targeting sort of brain-specific um, RVG um, sort of peptides, LAMP2B, things like this, which actually are quite established now to deliver vesicle, the outside of the vesicle, to a target cell or an organ. But the, the energy involved and, and, the, and the dynamics and the kinetics and, and things like this is still... Very, very early days. Right, but does the vesicle itself seem to have any of its own power? Or again, is it just a passively floating uh, cell-esque type entity? Yeah. Can you well, tell that? A, yeah, true. Like, I think 
some insights in proteomics and, and um, some cell biology sort of work recently from um, a few different groups um, who've sort of shown it as well that um, vesicles actually contain um, a variety of mitochondrial components. And the mitochondria is in the cell the main, call it the main energy source. Obviously, muscle cells have much more mitochondria than other sort of cells. And we just think that maybe this is a, an energy source that either the vesicle is transferring um, or is potentially using that energy source within. Now, obviously, it's quite complex. Um, we don't think there's a mitochondria in a vesicle, but we think there's components of a mitochondria that is in a vesicle. Um, there's a lot of other, you know, I'd call it active um, signaling within the vesicle as well. So enzymes, kinases, um, which are active, and a lot of other components which we know are transported intact. Um, so whether the vesicle is using this itself or whether this, the vesicle is using this to transfer and then signal in a, in a target cell, I guess, remains to be determined. Has anyone done a time lapse where they capture, you know, vesicles from a cell and then split the population and then, uh, you know, centrifuge or separate or work on them right away and then wait a day or two and then work on them to see if there's any fundamental differences? Uh, no, I think um, that is quite a good point. Um, in terms of fundamental differences of, of energy itself, that's really where you're going? Yeah, I just, you know, I don't want to anthropomorphize them, but are they just passive tools? Are they passive messengers or are they, in fact, alive do they consume yeah. energy? Do they have any agency? That's what I'm asking. Yeah, look, they definitely, look, I think if you start um, freezing, thawing these sort of vesicles, their function can like almost, it doesn't disappear, but it definitely is reduced, which would tell you that the components within the vesicle are active, are uh, the, um, how long you can keep them for, and um, the concentration, the dose effect is important. So it would sort of infer that there is a very controlled, precise component within a vesicle that is inducing this function. Um, I think that the way in which we isolate, purify, sort of segregate these vesicles apart, um, a lot of these sort of approaches are, are being not so much developed, but I think applied now to these questions, which is what are the different subtypes of vesicles? How does the composition of those vesicles differ and then more importantly, in the context of disease, things like that, how, do the com how does the composition differ? Because we, we can just say that there's all these different types of vesicles, but hang on, in this disease state or in this physiological state, this vesicle composition doesn't change. And so that is just as important as a vesicle, which composition that does change. Are proteins uh, very taggable? You know, can you tag them with fluorescent markers or other markers to see, you know, what ends up in a um, in a in a series of vesicles or not, or where they go mm -hmm. and where they, you know, where they go to in a cell once they enter? Yeah, look, I think we can, um, we can label, we, we can actually label the entire vesicle itself. So we can label this with lipophilic dyes. We've, we can even do stable fluorescent dyes as well, um, such as um, GFP and, and the other sort of um, fluorescent markers. You can actually label protein as well. But I guess the, the uh, where, where the field is sort of, pursued a little bit more is some of the other labeling techniques where you can actually label RNA. So these are um, fluorescent tags on microRNAs and other types of RNAs as well. And then you can actually track not only whether you can incorporate those tags in a musical, but also where does it go? 
Now, the only issue with that is some of the background fluorescence and the sensitivity of some of the instruments to detect is a little bit of an issue. Um, so some of the in vivo work with this about, okay, here's Vesicle X, where does it go? Um, the background fluorescence does still present a problem, but I think there has been some, you know, Cree-Lox sort of systems where um, imaging this on a global, almost whole image, whole, whole animal image scale um, has proved um, in, in part quite promising. So, again, what have you learned by looking at the EV population of, you know, a given cell type? You know, it, yes, it's heterogeneous, great. But when you look at the proteomics of it, what appears to be the instruction set that's carried with the EV? You know, what are the roles or the common roles of the proteins that the EVs carry? Yeah, sure. Look, I think uh, we've got a study going right now where we used to look at, look, what was the composition of the vesicle? And that told us a lot of clues about, you know, how the vesicle was made as we sort of went into before. But where this is now going is what is the cargo in the vesicle that can induce this function, this, this change in, the, in a cell state? And so the first part you can actually see is some of the dynamic post-translational modifications within the vesicle. So we think that the vesicle is transferring the, either the um, post-translational modif- modified proteins state to the target cell um, to induce something different that the non-PTN um, uh, cargo um, may actually induce. So that's, I guess, the first thing. The second thing is what is in that, that cargo, that, that composition, that can actually induce the functional change that what we can actually already observe. So a lot of our work, if we want to look at targeted change, is we already would potentially have functional assays ongoing that we already sort of know what some of the clues that proteomics can infer about some of the molecular mechanisms that the vesicle can actually perform. So that's the two things. And the last thing is we can now start to look at the surface of the vesicle. So we can shave the surface very lightly, keep the vesicle intact so we're not lysing the whole vesicle. We can actually also um, biotinylate. So this is where you, you actually put a surface coat on the vesicle and just take out the membrane of the vesicle. Okay, wash away all the so-called content within. And I guess a few of these approaches now allows us to gain how do the vesicles transfer, what is the molecular function with, of the cargo within the vesicle, and if we already know the functional change in the target, i.e. a fibroblast being activated or a cancer cell doing function ABC, we already have clues in the proteomics about what are the drivers in the vesicle that can do. So that's sort of where we're linking this together. So what are some of your speculations right now? You know, again, there are speculations. I'm not going to hold you to them and no one else will, but, you know, what, what are some things that you're uh, speculating or that you're going to find or look to be apparent? You, you went back before about, look, every cell type probably has a different vesicle composition. Um, we can't look at every type of vesicle, but we're trying to look at this as in-depth as possible. So we've taken about 10 different cell models, a human um, with a variety of different either normal physiology um, versus cancer biology and we're doing a very definitive omic interrogation on that and this is every type of omics um, possible so we can actually start looking at a barcode of the vesicle and that will then allow us to gain those insights about how is this vesicle different to this other type of vesicle so if you want to start going down a engineered vesicle path which is where we want to go the evolution of these vesicles is very 
very precise. So how the, how the content is within these vesicles, what does the vesicle do? Um, how does it target the actual surface? Uh, how does it target a certain organ? We want to piggyback onto this and say, can we start engineering our own? So that's sort of our speculation is that we think there's an, an inherent trophism on these vesicles that allows them to be delivered and then allows them to modify these targets, these target cells. Um, but I guess, I guess the big question in the field is how long does that transfer normally take? And secondly is with the targets, how long does the target actually be altered for? Is it a transient state, meaning that the cell only partially transforms and, and is altered? Um, or is it a, quite a stable um, um, transition, uh, meaning that the vesicle can actually deliver something to stably alter that cell? So that's sort of a few of our speculations. Um, we're getting more and more into the regenerative medicine. So how, do the, how does the vesicles um, from a certain cell state alter um, and drive, I guess, the, the aspect of wound healing um, in, in heart and, and a few other uh, areas? But that's sort of where we're pursuing. What's, um, what's the energy burden? You said the cells put them out constantly. So how much of a resource burden is it on a cell to constantly spit these things out? And does that mean possibly that uh, the intake of EVs could be an energy source in addition to, you know, circulation of nutrients through bloodstream and then interstitial fluid? Exactly. Exactly. So we, we think there's about one by 10 to the 11 vesicles circulating in blood. So it's very, very, very high. Um, So uh, you can imagine the number of cells we have in our body. Now we think that, it is a very um, probably energy consuming process, but the cell has to do it for a reason. So as important as the cell is to communicate locally, it also wants to find out exactly, you know, sending components outside of that region. Now you can imagine that the cell is then internalizing specifically a lot of the content that is being taken up in the local environment as well. So yes, it would be a, a high energy drain on the cell, but it actually probably is, is, almost at equilibrium. So probably the amount of vesicles that are being internalized are probably the same amount of vesicles, you know, energy sort of content amount um, is what is actually being released. So we know that some vesicles probably are much larger in size, so probably less vesicles, but more content. Um, So I think it is quite a dynamic, but very well controlled process. Has anyone calculated the the energy requirement for a, uh, you know, a vesicle that's created by a budding of the cell membrane versus one that's, you know, created internally, and does that tell you anything? Or if you look at the profile of EVs expressed, if you were able to somehow quantify the resources needed to make them, and you look at that distribution of EVs that are spit out under different physiological conditions, do you think that would tell you anything? Um, possibly. I think, um, look, that's not our area of expertise at all, but I think the, the energy con- uh, consumption uh, question, I think, is, is quite... Um, active, I would say, um, how these things are made, how often they're made, um, how much of a strain this is on the cell itself. Um, but I think this is this is a, I would say, a normal physiological um, response. This is not a response in the context of disease or, or anything different like that. I think just the content itself may be different. Um, we know that actually <clears throat> the number of vesicles, and this is a few different studies, they do differ, but the number of vesicles do increase with cancer stage. Um, so we know that um, obviously as, as 
tumor cells become more metabolically active, they would increase their number of vesicle release. We also see that in, in human embryo and other sort of embryo studies where the very early stage of, of embryonic development, there is a lot of vesicles that are released and this sort of coincides with, with the high metabolic activity of those cells at that early development stage. Um, and you compare it to more aged cells. So this would be, um, and other sort of cell types, which actually release a much lower number of vesicles. Whether this links in with direct energy consumption versus the metabolic state of the cell, it remains to be questioned. Okay, well, very good. Well, David, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work, read papers and interact with you? Yeah, look, we've got a, um, a website that we sort of um, outline a lot of the work that we are doing. Um, I guess it explains what proteomics is for um, anyone and everyone. And more importantly, how do we link the two together? I guess, um, you know, I think we, we work with a lot of people, um, both nationally and internationally. I think this, our vision is sort of to keep collaborating and, um, and interacting in this space. So I think starting to define what is the role of these vesicles in other environments. And more importantly, if we start to work out that, then we can start piggybacking onto this very perfect system of cell signaling and start designing very cell-specific um, therapies. And I think this is really where we're starting to go with deliverable targets. So if we know the vesicle does it so, so well, um, can we actually design a so-called cell-free therapy that does it just as well and we can deliver what we want when we want? Um, if you wanted to look at, um, I've got a position at the Baker um, Heart and Diabetes Institute. Um, if you Google molecular proteomics, I think um, my lab will come up. You can, you can check it out, um, see who we are, see what we do, see some of the projects available, um, um, where the team's projects are, and um, I guess where we're sort of developing the next generation of physical work. Excellent. Well, David, thank you for coming. You came from no a worries. long way, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure. Forget frequently asked questions, common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond and become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in fields such as sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Get ready. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.